About a half million people are still stuck at Gaza's southern border as Israel prepares for a ground assault against Hamas. It's Monday, October 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, how the war in Israel might affect the political future of Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. Also, as Massachusetts rents motel rooms to shelter migrant families, rates are going up, and others seeking shelter say they are being displaced. They wanted $778. (laughs) We didn't have it because we were paying nightly. So we had to leave. We had to leave. Also, President Biden expected to ask Congress for more funding for fighting in Ukraine and Israel. In sports, Patriots lose scattered showers today, highs in the 50s. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has returned to Israel for consultations. He said yesterday that a border crossing in southern Gaza would open to allow humanitarian aid to get in for Palestinians. Americans trapped in Gaza could get out, but it is still not clear if that crossing is open. Meanwhile, the Israeli military and the defense ministry have issued another order for civilians to move from their homes. But NPR's Peter Kenyon reports this time the order comes in northern Israel, near the border with Lebanon. The Israeli authorities say they have activated a plan to evacuate residents of 28 villages within about a mile of the Lebanese border to leave their homes. The order from the Defense Ministry's National Emergency Management Authority says the residents will be moved to, quote, guest houses subsidized by the state. The order comes after one of the villages, Shula, came under a Hezbollah missile attack on Sunday. Israeli media report one civilian was killed. The relocation plan follows an order to Palestinians living in the northern Gaza Strip to also relocate. That order caused hundreds of thousands of Palestinians to take to the streets, creating chaotic scenes in overcrowded schools and hospitals that had no time to prepare to act as emergency shelters. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. Americans have been leaving Israel. A group of them arrived last night in Tampa Bay. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was there to greet them. We're going to have more flights coming in. We, uh, you know, we anticipated that there could be as many as 700 or to 1,000 Floridians that need it. These flights have been organized by private business people with some help from the Florida state government. The White House is expected to send a new request to Congress this week to fund billions of dollars of aid to Ukraine and Israel. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, the requests face an uncertain fate. The Biden administration has been asking Congress for $24 billion in military and economic aid to Ukraine since August, with no success. Now military assistance to Israel will be added to the request. We know that... uh... Time is not on our side. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says White House officials were on Capitol Hill late last week, laying the groundwork for the new increased ask to come. You know, we really do need supplemental funding. And so um, we're uh, uh, we're mindful of the time. Although a large and bipartisan majority in Congress supports the funding, Congress can't pass anything until the House elects a new speaker. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Business in the House is paralyzed while Republicans consider who they'll vote for as a speaker. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan won a GOP leadership contest last week, but he will need nearly every House Republican to vote for him to win the speakership race, and he seems to be far short of the goal. House Republicans are expected to meet today. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. A Massachusetts man is among the soldiers preparing for Israel's expected ground invasion against Hamas in Gaza. Boaz Arbel of Needham flew to Tel Aviv last week to re-enlist with the Israeli Air Force. He's helping coordinate medical evacuations from the front line, and he says his four daughters all serve in the Israeli Defense Forces. It some, somehow feels better when I'm here fighting alongside them, not physically, but knowing that I'm here in the same time zone and, and with my family who is, who is under threat under constant threat. Arbel says he plans to stay in Israel until the war is over. A church group from Salem that began a trip to Israel the day the Hamas attacks began is back home safely. The group of about 30 people from Mary, Queen of the Apostles Parish, was supposed to take a nine-day tour. Members say at first their local guides downplayed the attacks, but then they were told they had a half hour to gather their things and evacuate. They say they traveled from Israel to Jordan to Turkey before returning to Boston. Governor Maura Healey will give an update on the state's family shelter system today. Massachusetts is running out of space to house families as migrants continue to arrive in the state. Last week, federal officials were in Massachusetts assessing the situation. More than 20,000 people are enrolled in the state's emergency shelter program. A reminder to redline commuters this morning, a partial shutdown of the line is in place. The two week-long closure affects the Ashmont branch and Mattapan line. T officials say crews are repairing the tracks. Free shuttle buses are replacing trains between Ashmont and JFKU mass stations on the Ashmont branch. The Mattapan line is closed between Ashmont and Mattapan. The time is six minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. The Patriots lost in Las Vegas yesterday. They fell to the Raiders 21-17. to The Pats are now 1-5 and for the season. Scattered showers expected today. Temperatures in the 50s. More rain tonight with lows in the 40s. It's 50 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. We have a glimpse today of life for civilians in what Israel's defense minister has called a complete siege of Gaza. Israel is responding to an attack out of Gaza by Hamas, which killed 1,300 people. The bombardment by air and sea has killed more than 2,700 Palestinians. And for those who survive... Food and water are running out as Israel has shut off the supply of both. NPR's Ea Batraoui has been talking with people in Gaza. Welcome back to the program. Hi. What are you hearing? It has been sheer terror and a struggle to survive. Hundreds of thousands of people in northern Gaza left their home over the weekend following Israeli evacuation notices. They dropped leaflets from the sky telling people to leave their homes. And so many people were walking by foot. Children were walking for miles heading south 
moms were carrying their babies, and there's no guarantees of safety to the areas in the south that they have evacuated to. Israel continues to bomb areas across the Gaza Strip, and there have been reports of entire families being killed in the south over the weekend. And the Palestinian Ministry of Health says a third of all those killed since the beginning of this war have been children. And there are also people who simply cannot leave and evacuate south, even if they wanted to. Doctors and nurses are still treating a stream of wounded from continuous Israeli airstrikes, including in Gaza's city's biggest hospital, El Shifa. We're also talking about more than 9,000 people have been wounded since the start of this war. Many are on life support. There are people who are disabled, uh, elderly. So I reached a woman named Nancy in Gaza City. She's stuck there with a baby and no way to get out. Let's take a listen to what she told me. So she's saying she has no transportation, no cars able to take her out. The neighborhood is full of people that haven't left either. She's running low on baby formula and diapers and water. And that is the other major crisis unfolding now for Gaza. People are drinking seawater and contaminated water. And that is because Gaza has been under a complete Israeli siege for an entire week now with nothing coming in, no fuel, food or water. And the main power plant has shut down and hospitals are on their last days of fuel for generators. I'm just thinking through everything you've told me. You're talking about the hardship imposed by an evacuation order. In theory, the evacuation order is to protect civilians so that Israel's military can do what it wants without killing civilians. But people are saying they're being harmed by that, being harmed by the blockade. So where does the United States fit into all this? Doesn't the U.S. say it supports Israel but does not want civilians harmed? Well, we have been hearing for the past two days that there are efforts for Gaza's border crossing with Egypt to open, and that would allow some 500 to 600 Americans, Palestinian Americans and other foreigners to leave. But Egypt is insisting if that border crossing opens, aid has to get in from Egypt's side. But we've just heard this morning from Israel's prime minister office saying no deal for a ceasefire in the south of Gaza has been reached, so no foreigners coming out and no aid going in. Now, Egypt has a huge convoy of aid trucks waiting there at the border, ready to bring in fuel, food, ambulances, surgical kits, medications, and chlorine tablets for water. Doctors Without Borders says currently there are no painkillers in hospitals, so you have people and children screaming in pain from full body burns, severed limbs, shattered bones. This is the situation now in Gaza. And Israel, of course, is by no means done with its operation. What is it planning next? Well, we know there are hundreds of thousands of Israeli reservists at the border, and there's talk of an imminent ground invasion into Gaza. And after all of what has unfolded, Israel says it is still only the beginning of its response to the Hamas attacks. The U.S. has made clear it stands by Israel. It is not calling for calm or urging restraint at this time. But Israel has said repeatedly it will destroy Hamas as an organization, disarm it, make it unable to govern. But how that happens is unclear. Aya, thanks so much. Thank you. That's NPR's Aya Batraoui in Jerusalem. One million people have been displaced in Gaza since war broke out between Hamas and Israel just over a week ago, according to the U.N. Many of them are heading to Gaza's border with Egypt, the only way out, not controlled by Israel. But the border crossing at Rafah has been closed since the Hamas attacked that sparked this round of fighting. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, speaking to reporters before flying out of Cairo yesterday, believes that'll change at least for humanitarian aid. Rafah will be open. We're putting in place with the United Nations, with Egypt, with Israel, with others, the mechanism by which to get the assistance in and to get it to the people who need it. But why won't Egypt let fleeing Gazas in? 
For answers, we turn now to Abdelrahman Salah al-Din, a former Egyptian diplomat who's now a member of the Egyptian Council for Foreign Relations. Ambassador, welcome. Um, why doesn't Egypt want to allow Palestinian refugees in? Because actually uh, emptying Gaza of its population is not going to solve the problem. The problem of military, Israeli military occupation of both Gaza and the West Bank would remain until there is a Palestinian state. Uh, according to the same model that Egypt followed in its relations with Israel, look at our relations with Israel today. Uh, our borders are secured. There are, we are cooperating in many fields. We would like Palestinians and Israelis to have the same situation. It, it, and it's but only Ambassador, let me because ask you this. we didn't have yeah. that. It, it wouldn't maybe save the, solve the problem, but wouldn't it save lives? It would save lives to, to, to keep those 2.3 million Palestinians in their land, moving them is against humanitarian international law. This is a population transfer that would remind us all of what happened in 1948 and 1967, where millions of Palestinians moved across the borders. And when we talked about their right of return, no one is listening and Israel is objecting. So, yes, we would like in Egypt, actually, this is the, the sixth war between Gaza and Israel. And in each war, Egypt has been intervening to try to save lives, provide humanitarian assistance across its borders, exchange prisoners of war, and save the civilians from being starved out. What is happening today that 2.3 million Palestinians are cut off water food, electricity, and medical supplies is a war crime, actually. And the world should not be just watching in silence. I think we have reached an agreement with the Secretary of State, uh, U.S. Secretary of State yesterday, and, and, and you broadcasted his statement that Rafah will be opened. We are still waiting for a signal from the Israeli government that that is the case. For so humanitarian can... aid. I think that's what Blinken was talking about. Open for humanitarian aid. Uh, is that exactly. something? Yeah. Is, so is, is that something that uh, Egypt is ready to do right away? Yes, right away, as it was the case in the last five wars. And Rafah, as you might know, is only for passengers. But in these exceptional circumstances, we allow also humanitarian supplies, medical supplies, food supplies, water uh, for those starving people and for those hospitals that are lacking basic supplies. Usually the supplies are run through the Kiryat Shalom or uh, Karm Abu Salim crossing uh, um, uh, across from the mm. Negev desert. But because Israel is closing all its crossings, the crossings that it controls, we, we make up for this by allowing the humanitarian supplies uh, through Rafah under the United Nations supervision. We would like uh, this crisis to be over in order to look for the day after. Okay. Because it is not enough to stop the war. 
actually. Uh, otherwise, we would have another war. Even if the Israelis finish off Hamas, there will be another Hamas. Is there concern? As long as there is... Uh-huh. Ambassador, is there concern on Egypt's part that doing anything at this point might spill Hamas violence into Egypt? As long as military occupation is in existence and Palestinians under military occupation, there will be a new Hamas. And as long as there is no horizon for a political settlement, there will be another uh, resistance in violence. And, And this is very important. Our silence for the last 40 years and our stalled, uh, the, the stalled peace process, and with no answer from the international community, is inflicting harm on all of us. Look at the possibility that this conflict might escalate. What, what, what answer might, would you like to hear, Ambassador? What answer would you like to hear? I would like to hear one answer, that we will try to save as much civilians as possible on both sides in this war, stop the war immediately, and move on to a peace process that would produce two states and give hope to the Palestinians. This is our only way to stop the escalation. The escalation of this conflict could really um, threaten even U.S. soldiers who are in the region. We have 25,000 U.S. soldiers at this point, in the region. In the, in the few seconds we have left, at this point, how likely or even how hopeful would a two-state solution be now? I think uh, we should follow the model of the October War 50 years ago be- between Egypt and Israel. In Egypt, And with the help of the United States, we converted this war to be a launch pad for peace. I think this war, and because of the magnitude of the um, damage it's inflicting, we can turn it into an opportunity of peace. That's former Egyptian diplomat Abdel Rahman Salah El-Din. Thank you very much for your time, Ambassador. Thank you, sir. And for more and differing views on the Mideast conflict, please visit npr.org slash updates. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, how the war in Israel might affect the political future of Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. And the news from Israel continues to change and change quickly. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for the politics, personal stories, and history you need to understand this moment. Continue listening. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with Uni Restaurant and Sashimi Bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. And Brigham and Women's Hospital. For expert, research-based obstetric and gynecologic care, turn to Brigham and Women's. Specialists in women's health with the latest innovative treatments for complex conditions. U.S. News ranks Brigham and Women's number one for obstetric and gynecologic care in the country. BrighamandWomens.org. I'm Scott Tong. 
As the conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza continues, the humanitarian crisis inside Gaza is worsening. Israeli leaders look for ways to secure their borders and increase security for their citizens. Perspectives and reporting from all sides, next time in Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Scattered showers today, temperatures in the 50s. Tonight, more showers, lows in the 40s, and clouds and rain tomorrow with highs in the 50s. It is 50 degrees in Boston. And James Beard-nominated chef Yahya Noor comes to WBUR City Space Wednesday. He'll be discussing Somali food and his hit restaurant in East Boston. You can find tickets at wbur.org slash events. It's 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments team specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts has run out of shelters for families experiencing homelessness. So the state has rented hotel and motel rooms for more than 3,000 families that qualify for the shelter system. But some of those rooms used to have other occupants. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports on what happens to those guests when the state steps in. I met Brenda Banville in a McDonald's parking lot about an hour west of Boston. She's 61 and lives in a car with her adult son. She peers in the back window. I got my important papers, a fan, and some food back there, but there's none. You're out of food? Yeah. Sometimes she gets meals from a town program. At night, she says she reclines the passenger seat. I I sleep on this side with my coat. For a pillow. Yep. Inside the car, she explains she and her son lost their apartment 14 months ago. They stayed at a roadside motel. It's painted a faded pink. The rooms cost between $75 and $90 a night, depending on the season. But the owners were understanding when Banville's son couldn't pay in full. If he didn't have 20 more dollars, they would let him owe him till the next day. Because some days he makes more money than other days. Banville's son, Stephen, delivers food for the app DoorDash. It was enough to scrape by. But then, a few weeks ago, Banville says the cost of their room went up, and the motel owners started charging weekly rather than nightly. They wanted $778. (laughs) We didn't have it because we were paying nightly. So we had to leave. We had to leave. The motel owner declined interview requests. Soon after she left, Banville realized the motel had been rented to the state to use as a family shelter for $120 a night. 
In the past year, the number of families in the state-funded family shelter system has more than doubled. Without enough traditional shelter units, the state has been filling the gap with thousands of hotel and motel rooms. Experts say this has disrupted some hotel markets and sent prices up. But it's unclear how many people have been pushed out of motels and into homelessness. The data piece is hard. If someone's not connected to any particular program or service, how would we know that this is happening? Rachel Heller runs the nonprofit Citizens Housing and Planning Association. A number of housing advocates say they have heard of some people being pushed out of hotels. It's happening enough that it's clear it's a problem. State officials say they work to make sure no motel guests are displaced. Noah Bombard directs communication for the agency that oversees Family Shelter. He says the hotel and motel owners manage their own reservations. In many ways, it's not much different than if you were booking for a wedding or if you were a business booking a bunch of rooms for a convention. Uh, the hotel tells us, you know, we have, you know, 20 rooms, 30 rooms, whatever available. And the state says, you know, we'll, we'll take them. Bombard says if someone were pushed out, the state would look for alternative arrangements. I think each situation would probably be unique uh, if that were to happen, and we'd have to, you know, analyze what was in front of us. Part of Colby O'Brien's job is to do that analysis. He's with the shelter provider Making Opportunities Count, which runs five different hotel and motel locations for the state. When opening a new shelter site, he says one of the first things his team does is to meet with the hotel owner. We say, hey, who, who do you have living there right now? Are there long-term guests? Are there no long-term guests? He says the logic is simple. We're there to help people that are homeless. You know, our mission is never to put anybody in a position where they're going to become homeless. A few weeks ago, his team started working at a motel where about a dozen families were already living. Some relocated to a hotel down the road with the same owner, same pricing. One found a house. There was a family at this site that was in the school district. The child um, actually had autism. And we said, let's not uproot them. Let's keep them living at the hotel. O'Brien says at another hotel-turned-shelter, he learned the rates were nearly doubling for a family that had been living there for a long time. O'Brien immediately called the owner. You know, we had a discussion around why it's not fair to them. You know, just because you can maximize revenue doesn't mean that you should put people in a situation where they can't afford to live anymore. The family was allowed to keep the original rate. But O'Brien says renting to the state can be appealing to hotel owners because they fill so many rooms for such a long time. He worries about former guests he doesn't hear about, like Banville. His team works in the motel where she used to stay, but he says he was never told about her. From the McDonald's parking lot, Banville says she's not willing to go into an adult shelter, partly because she'd be separated from her grown son. It's a shelter for a man and a shelter for a woman. I won't go. I just, I can't. Some nights, she and her son have enough money for a nearby motel. But she says the rooms that are left are more expensive than where they used to stay. Banville says she understands the need to expand the family shelter system. And she understands that about half the people in the system are migrants fleeing difficult situations. You know, they came here to be safe. And so we're trying to help them, but I need help.
She says she wishes the system wasn't pitting homeless families against people who are barely making ends meet. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Today's top stories are next here on WBUR and in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the state of California is banning some food additives, including red dye number three. Thanks for starting your week with us here at 90.9 WBUR. We'll have updates throughout the day on the war in Israel and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Follow the news with us each day. It's 730. WBUR supporters include the law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. And Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at CitysideSubaru.com. Love is now electric. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.N. Secretary General is calling on Hamas to release all hostages without conditions. At the same time, he says Israel should allow humanitarian aid into Gaza. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports from Amman. Secretary General Antonio Guterres says Gaza is running out of water, electricity, and other essential supplies. He says the U.N. is ready to send aid within hours, but it needs unimpeded access. He made the call as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken tapped a retired diplomat, David Satterfield, to lead efforts to coordinate aid with Israel, Egypt, and the U.N. We're determined to do everything we can to address the needs of people in Gaza. Uh, civilians should not have to suffer for Hamas's atrocities. Blinken was speaking to reporters after visiting six Arab states trying to contain the conflict and telling regional leaders it can't be business as usual with Hamas. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Amman. Blinken is back in Israel today. NPR's Tamara Keith says policy experts she's spoken with believe U.S. allies and foes are watching how the U.S. responds in the Middle East. The argument is that Russia and China and Iran are all watching the U.S. resolve and looking for the alliances that President Biden is so proud of helping to build in Europe and beyond, looking for those alliances to falter. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. A local neo-Nazi group protested 
outside Governor Maura Healy's home in Arlington over the weekend. On social media, the group NSC 131 showed images of masked men lighting flares and chanting anti-immigrant slogans. The group has demonstrated in five communities where migrant families are housed. NSC 131 describes itself as a pro-white nationalist group. It called the demonstration at the governor's home a, quote, victory. The demonstrators reportedly left quickly and no arrests were made. Massachusetts State Police are investigating a bomb threat to an Attleboro synagogue. Members of Congregation Agudas Akim say they received an emailed threat Saturday. The state's bomb squad found no items of concern. Similar threats were reported in Rhode Island. State House Speaker Ron Mariano is expecting a vote this week on a stalled gun reform bill. The plan would require serial numbers on individual gun parts to try to crack down on unregistered so-called ghost guns that are assembled by individuals. It would also tighten the state's ban on assault weapons and would limit where guns can be carried. Mariano tells WCVB's On the Record that gun rights advocates and the Massachusetts Chiefs of Police Association still oppose the bill, but he thinks it would improve safety for officers. As a law enforcement officer goes into a domestic violence situation, why wouldn't he want to know how many guns are registered in a household? Why wouldn't he want to know what he was walking into? To have the chiefs blatantly pan this bill is a bit troubling to me. The state Senate is considering its own version of the bill. The Cambridge City Council plans to vote tonight on amendments that would allow taller and denser affordable housing in parts of the city. Supporters say new rules would ensure zoning issues do not stand in the way of affordable developments. Critics tell the Boston Globe they're concerned that high-rises would then crop up in neighborhoods like Harvard Square. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com slash go. It was another defeat for the Patriots in Las Vegas yesterday. They lost to the Raiders 21-17, to and that puts the Pats at just a 1-5 and record for the season. Scattered showers expected today with temperatures in the 50s. Tonight, a few more showers, lows in the 40s, and rain likely tomorrow with highs in the upper 50s. It is 51 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including hunger relief organizations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has insisted for many years that he puts his country's security first. In an interview last year, he spoke of Palestinians and explained why Netanyahu is only willing to offer them something less than a fully empowered Palestinian state. My formula is very simple. The only peace that we'll hold is one that we can defend. And the one that we can defend is one in which the Palestinians have all the powers to govern themselves 
The surprise attack by Hamas a little over a week ago punctured that strategy. So let's talk through what it means for Netanyahu with Guy Ziv, who is Associate Director of American University's Center for Israel Studies. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Um, do people in Israel directly blame Netanyahu for allowing this attack, for not being sufficiently on alert? Uh, the short answer is yes. He, uh, Netanyahu has long cultivated the self-image of Mr. Security. And um, that image has now been uh, irreparably uh, shattered. And uh, a, a poll taken a couple days ago shows that only 29% of the public now think he's qualified to be prime minister. Uh, and that includes many of his own voters. Um, so he no longer has uh, that image, nor will he ever gain that back. And if we looked at a poll from uh, a month ago or a year ago or 10 years ago, it would be different? It would be different. And, uh, you know, Israel has been in kind of gridlock for many, many years. Um, and the one theme that came up time and time again that he brought up in each of his many campaigns for, for office and, and for re-election has been his focus on security and the idea that he and only he could be counted on to ensure uh, Israeli security. Um, and, and now, given the um, the uh, the largest, the biggest, the most significant massacre of Jews since the Holocaust took place happened under his watch. Um, he can no longer obviously make that claim. And unfortunately for him, this is going to be his legacy. I want to come back to that word gridlock, because as I have followed Netanyahu's career, it has seemed to me, I think that analysts have sometimes said that gridlock is part of his strategy. He does not believe or does not accept the idea that there could be a two-state solution that could really work. He doesn't necessarily trust any particular partner that he could no negotiate with on the Palestinian side. And so it has seemed that that muddling along, doing something less than a peace solution is the most secure choice. Does this result at least in this particular moment, undermine that strategy? Uh, it does, because one of the things we're, we're seeing here is that his policies vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Palestinians have ultimately been proven to be failures. I mean, his idea was to kind of kick the can down the road on, on the two-state solution. Um, and in doing so, he weakened Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, and emboldened Hamas in Gaza. I mean, he undermined uh, President Abbas at every turn while taking Hamas seriously and ignoring so much of what was happening uh, in Gaza, um, thinking that he could just bypass the Palestinian issue altogether in his efforts to normalize agreements with the Arab countries. Um, and, uh, and so that ultimate deal with Saudi Arabia is now on hold indefinitely, um, and certainly this is not going to take place uh, while this war is, is happening. Let's swing back to the more immediate crisis, though. According to the Israeli government, 1,300 Israelis have been killed. The Israeli government is in the middle of, perhaps in the early stages of, a dramatic response against Gaza. And the prime minister is, well, he's the only prime minister Israel has. And he has struck a power-sharing agreement with Benny Gantz, the leader of the opposition. Uh, does it appear that he has stabilized his political position and essentially has the country behind him, at least for the moment? Well, he's got the country behind him for the moment, but it's really less about him and more about a show of unity and uh, less politics and more about a show of unity during uh, this greatest crisis that uh, Israel has ever faced. But that does not necessarily mean that he has anything to look forward to politically uh, once this war is over. 
Is the United States uh, being as supportive as it can, given that that uh, that the United States has occasionally had some difficulties with uh, Netanyahu, particularly Democratic presidents? Yes, absolutely. Uh, President Biden has displayed uh, tremendous leadership uh, regarding this war. He's actually the leader that Israelis wished they had. Um, and uh, he's somebody who's not only spoken with kind of moral clarity and empathy, uh, but also has been very tough uh, towards Israel's enemies and uh, provided uh, emergency military assistance to Israel from ammunition and interceptors to replenish the Iron Dome to moving the, the forward carrier striker group to, strike group excuse me, to the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, which will uh, hopefully deter other actors. Okay, thanks very much. That's Guy Ziv, the Associate Director of American University's Center for Israel Studies. Western Afghanistan has been hit once more by an earthquake. Here's NPR's Dia Hadid. Three people died in the most recent earthquake that hit Saturday. Dr. Asif Kabir is a deputy of the Public Health Department in the western province of Herat. He tells NPR producer Fazal Minallah Kazizai there were few fatalities because so many homes were already destroyed by previous quakes. People were already sleeping in the open. Since this round of earthquakes begun, Locals say 10 villages were totally flattened. The Taliban government says more than a 1,000 people have died, most women and children. In video provided by the UN, one woman weeps as she pushes through rubble with her hands to find what remains. Nearby, men stand on top of rubble and dig. In another video shared on social media, two boys pour through mud bricks. They say they're looking for onions. Folks never had much to begin with around here. It's absolute devastation. Philippe Propf is a spokesman for the UN's World Food Programme. He says while the UN is responding... We are still being hampered by these new earthquakes, by several aftershocks. And there was also a sandstorm that blew away tents that people had pitched after their homes were destroyed. So the situation is still evolving, unfortunately, and we currently do not know how many people now need assistance or even how many people have died or been injured. And while emergency aid is coming in, it's not clear how long it will last. The UN has struggled to raise money for Afghans. Donor countries are being asked to fund the response to several global disasters. And some countries are tired of the Taliban flinging up obstacles like sudden bans on operating. But the need remains dire. Already one third of the population doesn't know where their next meal will come from. Now we have this catastrophe on top of this. And the earthquakes just don't appear to be stopping as this part of Afghanistan prepares for winter. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Mumbai. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WVUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, President Biden's expected request to Congress for more funding for Ukraine and Israel. Scattered showers in our forecast today. Temperatures in the upper 50s. More rain tonight with lows in the 40s. 51 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. 
and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. In business news, MathWorks is looking to expand in Natick. The company has about 3,500 employees, making it the largest software developer in the state. Documents obtained by the Boston Business Journal show the company wants to replace an office building it bought next to its campus near the Natick Mall and replace it with a new, larger building. Natick officials will consider that plan later this month. The Medfield business that bills itself as the largest children's bookstore in New England will close next year after 20 years in business. The owner of Park Street Books and Toys says he'll retire because he can no longer give the store the energy it needs. He does plan to keep the store open through next summer. A popular national donut chain has opened its first New England location. Pennsylvania-based Duck Donuts opened in Walpole this weekend. The chain began more than 16 years ago in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. It now has more than 100 stores worldwide. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. There's new pressure on the Food and Drug Administration to take action on the synthetic food dye known as Red Number 3. Last week, California became the first state to ban it. And as NPR's Allison Aubrey reports, public health advocates want the dye removed from the food supply nationwide. The concern about red dye number three goes back decades. In 1990, the FDA restricted the use of it in cosmetics based on a study that it can cause cancer in rats. And since then, multiple studies have linked consumption of food dyes to behavioral issues in kids, such as being hyperactive. Dr. Peter Lurie of the Center for Science and the Public Interest supports banning it from the food supply. I think the passage of the bill in California creates undeniable pressure on FDA. We have filed a petition with FDA to get Red 3 banned, and we think that this will just make it more likely that they grant our petition. Synthetic food dyes give bright, flashy coloring to foods, making them more appealing to the eye. Red 3 is found in candy, such as the popular Halloween treat candy corn. And Christopher Gindelsperger of the National Confectioners Association says Red 3 is used in many foods since the FDA has long allowed it. It's kind of ubiquitous throughout the food system. Of course, the vibrant colors of candy are important to our industry and to our business. But there are other products too, beverages, yogurts, frozen foods. And the continued use of it, Gindel's Perger says, should be determined by federal regulators at the FDA, not the state of California. Otherwise, he says, California's ban, slated to take effect in 2027, would lead to a confusing patchwork of rules. 
I think it's FDA's call and it's time for the FDA to lean into the discussion, have a solid review, evaluate all of the available science, conduct their own research and provide the guidance that the food companies in this country need. When California's EPA reviewed the existing studies, they found reason to believe that synthetic dyes could negatively impact children's behavior. Professor Asa Bradman of University of California Merced helped with the analysis. He found low-income children had higher exposures to the synthetic dyes. There's about 25 studies, and of those, about 16 suggested a positive association between artificial food coloring intake and behavioral outcomes. For instance, in one double-blinded study that included kids aged three to nine years old, researchers compared what happened when they consumed drinks that contained synthetic dyes compared to dye-free drinks. They found artificial colors in the diet resulted in increased hyperactivity. And Mark Miller, a scientist with California's EPA, says animal studies suggest synthetic colors can alter learning and memory. I think the evidence is compelling that Children's consumption of synthetic food dyes can contribute to increases in symptoms like inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity in some children. An FDA spokesperson says the agency is actively reviewing the petition on Red 3 and will assess whether there's sufficient evidence to revoke its use. Some manufacturers have removed Red 3 from their products. M&Ms and Skittles do not contain the dye. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about a half hour on Morning Edition, the story of some Jewish-American parents in upstate New York who are struggling to explain the violence in Israel and Gaza to their children. It's 10 minutes before 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welland Montessori School, a five-time winner of Boston Parents Family Favorite Award, educating toddler to grade eight. Open house November 5th. More at Welland.org. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Fentanyl was involved in the vast majority of teen overdose deaths in 2021, and the problem is following them onto college campuses. When an overdose happens, naloxone can be the difference between life and death. Giving out uh, naloxone and fentanyl testing strips, if any of y'all would want them. Naloxone on college campuses, plus the latest on the Israel-Gaza conflict, on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. More than one million people in the Gaza Strip have fled their homes ahead of an expected Israeli ground invasion. Investigators in Illinois say the war between Israel and Hamas led a 71-year-old man to murder a young Muslim boy and attack a woman. And voters in Poland chose to move the country toward the center-left in yesterday's elections. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery and engineering and science. 
MathWorks.com. A few showers today, temperatures in the 50s, more showers tonight with lows in the 40s and rain again tomorrow with highs in the 50s. It's 51 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Martinez. There was a time back in the 90s when movie screens were littered with lawyers at their wits end. Why should he talk if we can't protect him? Up against incredible odds. I want to expose these people. Welcome to the war. (laughs) Risking their careers and sometimes their lives in the pursuit of justice under the law. You think I'm talking about breaking the law? No, I'm just trying to figure out how far you want to bend. And if you looked at the posters for these movies, you'd see one name in common. From the best-selling thriller by John Grisham. The Client, The Pelican Brief, A Time to Kill, and of course, the one that started it all, The Firm, all based on books by John Grisham. Now, after three decades, Grisham has written a follow-up to The Firm, and he spoke about it to NPR's Andrew Limbong. All right, just going by numbers on the board, right? Books published, books sold, you know, just time in the game. It's undeniable that John Grisham is a statesman of American letters. But (laughs) let's get any notions of literary greatness out of the way. Well, we're always uh, trying to angle a way to sell more books. And so we uh, (laughs) we thought a sequel to The Firm 30 years later might work. The Firm was first published in 1991. Back then, Grisham was a lawyer and was a member of the state legislature in Mississippi. So he'd start his days early and write in the mornings. His first book, A Time to Kill, didn't do so great at first, but The Firm hit big time immediately. It's about a young hotshot lawyer named Mitch McDeer. He isn't a criminal defense lawyer or a white collar prosecutor or anything like that. He's a tax lawyer, and he gets recruited into a secret law firm in Memphis that it turns out is doing shady business with shady people, and Mitch finds himself caught between the mob and the FBI. It's pulpy and breezy and primo material for a movie adaptation starring Tom Cruise. Here he is laying out his plans to wriggle out of this mess to his wife, Abby, played by Jean Triplehorn. That's insane! I have thought of every possible way here in the Caymans, in Washington. That's all I've done. Try to think of a way out. If we run, they find us. There is no big courtroom scene, no monologue about the truth. Instead, what Grisham pulled off with the firm was writing a gripping legal thriller that's essentially about filing paperwork. What are you going to do? Go in tomorrow and start to copy files. I saw the movie three times the first week. And after three straight viewings, I, I, I got it. I knew what was going to I knew the story, I knew what was going to happen, and I said, I'm really tired of this story. And so over the years, I would be surfing through the cable channels, you know, and I'd see The Firm, and I would uh, immediately keep going. I, just, I didn't want to see it. I didn't, wanna, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want to relive uh, that story. I, I, I never go back and read my books. I just can't do that. Not even before writing this new book, The Exchange, which takes place 15 years after The Firm. It's 2005. Mitch and Abby have two kids. They live in New York City. It's a bigger globe-trotting book. The main legal concern is over a fictional bridge in Libya that Colonel Muammar Gaddafi wants built. But before all that, Mitch goes back to Memphis to do some pro bono work with a lawyer named Amos Patrick, who's working on a case involving a man on death row. By the time Mitch meets Amos, the man on death row has died, supposedly by suicide. Here's Grisham reading. There's no way to find the truth, Mitch. Another one's gone and nobody cares. He sniffled 
and wiped his eyes again. I'm sorry. Mitch was somewhat surprised that a lawyer who had lost 20 clients to executions would be so emotional. Wouldn't you get callous and jaded after a few? He had no plans to find out. His time in this little corner of the pro bono world had just come to an end. It's not the law that makes for a good Grisham story. It's injustice. In 2006, Grisham wrote his first nonfiction book about a man on death row wrongfully convicted of murder. Since then, he's joined the boards of the Innocence Project and Centurion Ministries, groups that try to get innocent people out of prison. I'm writing my second nonfiction book now. Hopefully it'll come out a year from now. It's called Framed, and it's um, a collection of 10 of my favorite <laughs> favorite mm-hmm. wrongful conviction stories uh, involving inmates who were exonerated, men who were actually, and one woman, actually innocent yet spent 10, 20, 30 years in prison for somebody else's crime. That, that happens all the time. It's hard to have faith in a system where, where something like this happens so often. You know, and I, I was wondering where you were on that. Yeah, you know, when I was a young lawyer, um, I had a lot of faith in the jury system. I felt like juries usually do what's right uh, because of the collected wisdom and experiences of 12, um, you know, average folks, and we're all average. But I don't, I'm not so sure now. Uh, there, but so there's so many wrongful convictions. So many times juries are misled by the authorities they are supposed to trust. We're supposed to trust the police and the prosecutors. We believe in those people, the judges. That's the system. And we want to believe that it always works and it doesn't. But after reading so many cases and studying so many cases and involved in so many cases where the juries just brought back you know, the wrong verdict, Uh, I've got some doubts about the jury system. Besides his faith in our legal system being shaken, Grisham says he hasn't changed since he wrote The Firm. And as much as anyone can be the same guy 30 years later, I'm inclined to believe him. Back in 1994, NPR spoke to him when he was hot, but even then he knew it wouldn't last. I've reached a point now in dealing with Hollywood that um, I can get virtually everything I ask for. And that may not always be the case. While the rush of movie adaptations may be long over, he's still spent the past three decades reliably writing new books. Well, yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, divorce your wife? Start using cocaine? Get alcoholic? Go through rehab four times? What, what, what am I supposed to do to really, to really get some attention here? I mean, yeah. I'm not that kind of person. The world of books is facing multiple existential crises. Grisham is part of a big lawsuit against the artificial intelligence company OpenAI for copyright infringement. He says he's not allowed to comment on it. Books are being pulled from school and library shelves. Grisham calls that stuff, quote, ridiculous. But whatever is on the horizon for books, the latest by Grisham won't be far behind. Andrew Limbong, and Pair News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade 6 to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit tchs.org. And Solar Gardens, supporting local clean energy and accessing the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Negotiations continue in the Middle East to try to ease the worsening humanitarian crisis in Gaza. It's Monday, October 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, as Israel appears to prepare for a ground assault in Gaza, the U.S. says it's trying to address the plight of the Palestinian people there. They have every right to expect food, water, medicine, and the United States is going to continue to work with our partners to that end. Also this hour, Poland's populist right-wing government appears to be on its way out after eight years. Plus, we meet Massachusetts singer-songwriter Kimaya Diggs. I'm not somebody that's like, live every day as if it's your last, you know? It's just like, I want to live every day in a way that is fine. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. NPR has learned President Biden is delaying a trip to Colorado that he had planned for today. Instead, Biden will remain at the White House to participate in national security meetings as the conflict between Israel and Hamas militants continues. There's still no word on the status of the border crossing in southern Gaza. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said yesterday that it would open to allow humanitarian relief aid to reach Palestinians and to let Americans trapped in Gaza get out into Egypt. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. Part of the reason was Hamas was putting up roadblocks and refusing to let people even uh, approach the gate. So again, we're going to work on this very, very hard with both Israel and Egypt. We want to see safe passage for people that, that, that want to get out. He spoke to Weekend, All Things Considered. It's not clear that the crossing has yet opened. Secretary Blinken is back in Israel today for meetings with leaders. The head of the World Health Organization says Gaza is suffering from a, quote, humanitarian and public health catastrophe. NPR's Ari Daniel reports this comes amid Israel's continuing response to Hamas militants who attacked more than a week ago. Hospitals across Gaza are overwhelmed with the increasing number of patients needing urgent treatment for injuries caused by Israel's ongoing bombardment. Dr. Hassan Abu Sitta is a plastic surgeon usually based in London. For the last week, he's been at Alauda Hospital in Gaza. There are patients on mattresses on the floors everywhere. And... There are over 200 patients who need to go to the operating room and and can't because more critically ill patients are taking precedence. Abu Sitta says each day the hospital's tearing through medical supplies that should last a month and a half. The WHO says Gaza needs, quote, the immediate and safe delivery of food, medical supplies, and other humanitarian aid. Ari Daniel, NPR News. France is at its highest level of alert following the fatal stabbing of a teacher at a high school in the north of the country. 
Police say the attack was by a former student at the school who was described as an Islamist radical. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. A 20-year-old Chechen has been arrested in the school attack, and French Interior Minister Gérard Darmanin suggested there could be a link with the violence in the Middle East, though investigators have yet to announce a motive. Several Paris tourist destinations were evacuated briefly Saturday amidst bomb threats, and 7,000 French soldiers have been deployed to protect sensitive venues. Paris's historic Jewish quarter, the Marais, still seemed bustling, but kosher restaurant manager Romain Laudet says people are jittery. Since the, the war started in Israel, it's kind of a bit different, you know, it's, it's very quiet. People are scared to come out. It's very hard at the moment. The French government has banned all pro-Palestinian demonstrations for fear they could spark violence. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Home sales are down across Massachusetts, but the market remains competitive for buyers who continue to face high prices and low inventory. That's according to the Massachusetts Association of Realtors, which released its latest monthly real estate data today. WBUR's Zeninjor Enwameka reports. Single-family home sales fell over 28 percent in September compared to the same time last year. Meanwhile, condo sales fell nearly 13 percent. David McCarthy is president of the Massachusetts Realtors Association. He says low inventory is a big challenge for the industry and buyers, but... It's good news for sellers and that prices continue to climb. These last This last month, single-family homes rise just a little over 5 percent in condominiums, almost 8 percent, which is a pretty significant uh, increase. McCarthy says homes still need to be priced well because buyers aren't as willing to overpay as they have in previous seasons. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Some students and faculty at Lesley University are protesting job cuts. This month, the Cambridge School announced it would lay off some faculty and cut programs in a restructuring. Students and staff protesting the move tell the Boston Globe the cuts are, quote, a brutal attack against liberal arts education. University officials say they're refocusing the school on degrees in education, mental health, and the arts. Worcester officials say they're not happy with changes to the commuter rail. This month, the MBTA added four new stops along the Worcester-Natick Express train. The changes could add as much as a half hour to the average commute time. T officials tell the Telegram and Gazette, they are accepting feedback and will update the schedule this spring. The partial shutdown of the red line will affect some commuters this morning. The Ashmont branch and Mattapan line are shut down for two weeks as crews repair tracks. T officers say free shuttle buses are replacing trains between Ashmont and JFK UMass stations on the Ashmont branch. The Mattapan line is closed between Ashmont and Mattapan. Riders there have free access to the commuter rail's Fairmont line. It's six minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Paramount Pictures and Apple Original Films, presenting Killers of the Flower Moon, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, and directed by Martin Scorsese, only in theaters October 20th, rated R. The Patriots could not keep up with the Las Vegas Raiders yesterday. The team lost by four points. The final score, 21-17. to 17. Scattered showers expected today, with temperatures in the 50s, some rain tonight, lows 
lows in the upper 40s and more rain tomorrow with highs in the upper 50s. It's 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Today, a judge considers whether to order President Trump to pipe down when it comes to attacking people connected with one of the criminal cases against him. We'll hear the arguments in a moment. First, President Biden is focused on two wars overseas. He plans to ask Congress this week for money to help both Israel and Ukraine defend themselves. The president said U.S. assistance in both cases is needed. He spoke in an interview that aired on 60 Minutes last night. We're the United States of America, for God's sake. The most powerful nation in the history, not in the world, in the history of the world. The history of the world. We can take care of both of these and still maintain our overall international defense. Although not if the aid package fails to pass the House of Representatives, which is in chaos. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith reports. President Biden prides himself on his decades of foreign policy experience and boasts about the coalition he built to support Ukraine as it defends itself against Russia. Now with the situation in Israel, Biden faces another serious crisis. 2023 is turning into the year from hell. That's Leon Panetta, who served in the Obama and Clinton administrations, including as CIA director and defense secretary. And he says what's happening in Washington is adding to the instability. The combination of uh, challenges to our democracy, having a dysfunctional Congress, and then add to that the fact that we're now part of two wars going on in Ukraine and Israel. The White House has been urgently asking Congress for more aid for Ukraine for months. The funds are running low. But there's no House Speaker, so Congress can't pass anything. And a vocal faction of House Republicans oppose more aid to Ukraine. Now the White House is adding military aid for Israel to the request. And National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says they know time is not on their side. The runway's not forever here in terms of not only operations on the ground in Israel and Ukraine, but our ability to continue to provide security assistance to both partners. Public support for Ukraine has slipped since the early days of the war. Heather Conley, president of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, says Biden has fallen short in making the case to the American people for continued U.S. assistance. This is time to make sure the American people understand the gravity of the situation and to make sure that everyone understands the stakes that are in place. Conley says the crisis in Israel is giving Biden another chance to show why U.S. leadership is needed. If Ukraine is not successful in restoring its territorial integrity, if Israel struggles to defend itself, this opens the floodgates, if you will, for other countries to take advantage of the weakness to also claim territory, to express grievance, and that price tag gets higher. Being a leader on the world stage is a big part of President Biden's identity, raising the stakes for him in this moment. And politically, a foreign policy loss can hurt a president. 
Peter Fever is at Duke University, and he served in both the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations. He says Biden has a lot riding on Ukraine's success, and that requires Congress to continue the funding. But if that success is replaced by a collapse in Ukraine because we stopped supporting Ukraine, then the Biden foreign policy record looks much, much more negative. Biden has sought to reassure U.S. allies that this funding will come through and America will keep its commitments. I asked Panetta if domestic political challenges are now endangering Biden's credibility on the world stage. It's not just the credibility of Joe Biden. It's the credibility of the United States. And the last thing that this country needs to do in a dangerous world is send our adversaries a message of weakness. On Friday, White House officials were making that case in meetings with key lawmakers on Capitol Hill, laying the groundwork for the funding request they'll send up this week. Tamara Keith, NPR News. The Justice Department says former President Donald Trump undermined the 2020 election with bombastic statements and phony claims of fraud. Now, prosecutors working for special counsel Jack Smith say Trump is trying to do the same thing all over again in his criminal trial for alleged election interference. They're asking the judge to impose a partial gag order in the case because they say Trump's comments may lead to witness intimidation and that could taint the jury pool. Both sides are due in court in Washington, D.C. today. NPR Justice correspondent Kerry Johnson is following the story. She joins us now. Kerry, former president uh, was indicted in August for conspiring to defraud the government he once led. What's he said since that's got prosecutors concerned? He's said a lot, eh? The special counsel prosecutors say Trump has a history of inflammatory and misleading statements and that Trump knows when he speaks, he inspires other people to threaten and harass his targets. The judge in this case has already warned Trump's lawyers about a social media post Trump made a day after his arraignment that read, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. Since then, Trump has posted the justice system is rigged, that special counsel Jack Smith is deranged, that the judge is a radical Obama hack, and that he can't get a fair trial right here in Washington, D.C. Trump has also verbally attacked possible witnesses. They include former Vice President Mike Pence and his former Attorney General Bill Barr. Okay, so it's a long list. So what are prosecutors asking the judge to do? They're asking this judge for a limited gag order to cover not just Trump, but all the attorneys in the case, too. And they want to cover statements that create a high likelihood of prejudicing the case. Things like witness intimidation, remarks that could taint the jury pool. The Justice Department says they would not include writings in the court record or Trump statements that he's innocent. And in fact, one of the cases the special counsel cites to back up this request is a high-profile prosecution that Judge Tanya Chutkin handled a few years ago involving the un registered Russian agent Maria Butina. Judge Chutkin did impose a partial gag order in that case, but this one, A, is a lot harder, in part because it's not clear if Trump will follow the rules and what the judge might do if Trump crosses the line. Is she possibly going to order pretrial incarceration for the leading GOP presidential contender? But That's a hard question. Yeah. Isn't Trump, though, already under a partial gag order in New York City? 
He is. And in that civil fraud case in New York, a judge there issued a partial gag and sharply rebuked him after Trump made baseless accusations against the judge's law clerk and posted that clerk's photo online. The judge said, personal attacks on members of my court staff are unacceptable, inappropriate, and I will not tolerate them. Trump, of course, later deleted that social media post in question in New York. All right. So how is the Trump team expected to react to the request for a gag order in the D.C.? case today. Trump's main attorney in this case, John Lauro, has already called the idea an unconstitutional prior restraint in court papers. Lauro says the Justice Department got to say its piece in a 45-page indictment against Trump this past summer and that they shouldn't be allowed to muzzle Trump as he tries to defend himself. Uh, Laura wants Judge Shutkin to deny this gag order. He's also moved to dismiss the entire election interference case on the basis the former president is entitled to immunity for actions that relate to his job. A, that's bold argument. Not clear Trump will win, but it could lead to an appeal before trial, and that would play into Trump's strategy to delay all these criminal cases until after the 2024 election. All right, NPR's Kerry Johnson. Kerry, thanks. My pleasure. We have a lot of news for you on this Monday morning, including this. The next president of Ecuador will be the heir to a banana exporting empire. Voters made that choice yesterday amid unprecedented violence. NPR's Carrie Khan reports. The winner, 35-year-old Daniel Noboa, is the son of Ecuador's richest man, who unsuccessfully ran for the presidency five times. Last night, Noboa told supporters he's ready to get to work right away. We're going to build a country that has been gravely hit by violence, by corruption, and by hate, he said. Underscoring the violence, Naboa and his rival campaigned wearing bulletproof vests following the assassination of one of the candidates. Bringing peace to Ecuador will be tough. Homicides have skyrocketed in recent years as Mexican, Colombian, and Balkan cartels working with local gangs fight for territory to control cocaine trafficking to the U.S. and to Europe. Fleeing the violence, record numbers of Ecuadorians have left, many crossing the U.S. southern border. Outside the University of Guayaquil in the large Pacific port city, vendors hawk water and snacks to voters lining up under the intense sun. 49-year-old Gustavo Paladines says he voted for Noboa because he's young. He might not have a long political career, but he has a different kind of experience, he says. Aladinas is impressed with the president-elect's degrees from U.S. universities, including Harvard, which he says makes Noboa unlikely to steal. Voter Jocelyn Analema wanted the leftist candidate Luisa Gonzalez, a protege of former president Rafael Correa. She says she hopes Ecuador's new leader will make the country safer. She says everyone now is being extorted by gangs. The new president will have a short time to tackle Ecuador's problems. The previous president, under threat of impeachment, took the rare step of dissolving Congress and resigning. That leaves just a year and a half left of his term for the new president to finish out. Kerry Kahn, NPR News. 
And this afternoon on All Things Considered, New England's apple harvest has been a bust this year. Farmers and scientists blame the early spring frost and climate change. Listen to NPR on your smartphone, smart speaker, or your radio. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Poland's populist right-wing government appears to be on its way out after eight years. It's 19 minutes past eight. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brown University's Master's in Technology Leadership, preparing strategic leaders with innovative skills, professional.brown.edu. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways, ElliottHotel.com. I'm Scott Tong. As the conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza continues, the humanitarian crisis inside Gaza is worsening. Israeli leaders look for ways to secure their borders and increase security for their citizens. Perspectives and reporting from all sides, next time and Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Showers expected today with temperatures in the upper 50s. More rain tonight with lows in the 40s and a chance of showers again tomorrow. Temperatures in the 50s. It's 52 degrees in Boston. If you want to make some new friends, perhaps consider joining us Monday, October 23rd at WBUR City Space for a speed friending night. We'll provide the structure to make you feel comfortable and make connections. Tickets are at WBUR.org events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Seed. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a probiotic and prebiotic formulated with strains to support gut, skin, and heart health at seed.com public. From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Hinskip. And I'm Martinez. The crisis in Israel and Gaza continues to escalate despite humanitarian and diplomatic efforts. This morning, we're going to spend some time with a Jewish-American family in upstate New York as they try to help their young children understand and cope with what's happening. NPR's Brian Mann has our story. When the terror and violence in Israel and Gaza began, things moved really fast for Rani, whose family is mostly in Tel Aviv. Her phone went crazy with texts and phone calls. So I just had a visceral 
turn on the news, something happened in Israel, something real. Ella was up, so I didn't intend for her to hear. Ella is eight years old. Sitting on the edge of the couch next to her mom, she says she wants to know what's happening. I kind of been sneaking in watching on the news with my parents, but my parents don't want me to because, like, there's guns, rockets, and all that stuff, like shooting through houses. Here's a quick introduction. Ronnie is in her 40s. She's Israeli-American. She and her husband, James, he's in his 50s, live in a college town in upstate New York. They have three kids, Ella, who you've met, Aviv, who's nine, and Zoe, she's 11 and a half. They invited me to sit with them in their living room and listen to how they're talking as a family about the terror attack and the war. And right away, the kids kind of take over. They have a lot of questions. Here's Zoe. Like, how did it, like, why and how did it start? And this is Aviv. What are they going to do with all those kidnapped people? Are they going to murder them, torture them, or let them free? Those are scary questions. One thing the kids really want to know, will the violence reach their family members in Israel? Is there a chance that it will spread to Tel Aviv? Are you worried about Safta? She's going to be safe. What about our cousins? Ronnie and her husband James say answering these questions is painfully complicated. More often than not, they just don't have answers. We're not hiding the fact that there is a war going on, but some of the more detailed parts of it, yeah, we are protecting them from that. But sometimes the boundaries set by the parents break down, like this moment when Ella speaks up. So, you know how, like, Gaza snuck in through the gates? How do people not notice a big bunch of group of people climbing, going over a gate? James tries to explain how Hamas penetrated Israeli security. But what Ella hears is that she and her brother and sister might be vulnerable. Couldn't someone easily break into our house by climbing over the gate and smashing the windows? James leans into Ella, holding her and says their family dog will keep them safe. Then Bailey would bark like a maniac and alert us. She barks at everything. (laughs) It's the kind of thing you say to a child, part hope, part fairy tale, and it works. The kids laugh and seem to relax. But Ronnie, their mom, is on edge. She hates the fact families like hers, Jewish and Palestinian, are having these conversations. It might seem odd maybe to American families. Why would you be talking to your kids about hostages? This is terrible. But again, as an Israeli and I'm sure a Palestinian, it's so much part of your fabric of life, unfortunately. I asked Zoe and Aviv and Ella to tell me how much of all this they understand, what kind of picture has formed in their minds. Gaza was originally part of Egypt, I'm pretty sure. And then Israel took over it, so, and it's trying to rebel, so that's why it's attacking. It all started like a hundred million gazillion years ago. It is. They didn't like each other. While they talk, I watch Rani watching her kids, and it's clearly agonizing. It's hard to find the balance of how much to shield them. I want to frame it for them in a historical way, but you can see it's a little bit of a mush, right? It's some Something sticks and it's a salad. And, and so you don't really know how to do it well. And all I can do is slowly 
expose them to more of a complexity and also tell them things that are not complicated, like killing civilians is never right, ever, whatever side. That is something that's human and we can connect on that. So yeah, I, I, I wish I knew how to do this better or that I thought about it more carefully before I needed to really face it. But I didn't, and I should have. It's getting late, close to bedtime. As we wrap up, I ask the kids what they hope will happen now. Ella says she wants the hostages held by Hamas to be rescued, but she sounds doubtful. Do we know where people are hiding them, or have we had suspicions on where where people are? We can't know. I don't know. Then Aviv chimes in and says he just wants all the fighting to stop. I'd wish for a tie, so neither neither one neither one wins and neither one loses. It's because if one wins, the other one's going to be extremely harmed. That's not okay. If the other one wins, then the other one's going to be extremely hard. We don't want that. We want a tie. For Ronnie and James, this is maybe the hardest thing to explain to their children, that this isn't over. There are more ugly days ahead. Knowing what's going to happen in Gaza and being very, very scared for the Palestinians, I mean, terrified, and also being terrified for yourself because inevitably anti-Semitic attacks rise on Jews when this happens. The one thing Ronnie and James insisted on before inviting me to share this conversation is that I not use their last name or take photographs. Ronnie tells me it's important that people understand this, too, is part of what they have to share with their children, that Jewish families have to be cautious and wary, even here, half a world away from Israel and Gaza. Ryan Mann, NPR News, New York. For more coverage and for differing views and analysis of the conflict, go to npr.org slash Updates. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next here on 90.9 WBUR. And in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we meet Massachusetts singer-songwriter Kimaya Diggs, a featured artist in WBUR's The Makers series. It's 8.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events. Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org cars. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in Israel today. He's been holding more talks with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu ahead of an expected Israeli ground assault targeting Hamas in Gaza. The Prime Minister's office in Israel says there is no deal in place for a ceasefire and humanitarian aid in Gaza in exchange for allowing foreigners to leave. NPR's Peter Kenyon says that contradicts comments from Egyptian sources who've said such a deal's been agreed to. Multiple Israeli and international news outlets reported the apparent snag in the agreement to get foreign passport holders across the Rafah border crossing into Egypt, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office confirmed it Monday morning. U.S. officials had urged Americans in the Gaza Strip to move south toward the Rafah crossing and be prepared to cross, although the guidance warned that the situation is fluid. Separately, the Gaza Health Ministry released new casualty figures, saying at least 2,750 Palestinians had been killed and 9,700 wounded since October 7th. That was the day Palestinian militants from Hamas broke through the Gaza boundary wall and killed some 1,300 Israelis, taking about 120 others hostage. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. The White House says President Biden is canceling today's trip to Colorado and will remain in Washington. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Further details are coming out about the flight of migrants to Massachusetts last year. On CBS's 60 Minutes program last night, investigators said a woman working for Florida's governor helped gather up almost 50 migrants and fly them to Massachusetts from Texas. The report said the migrants signed consent forms and were given $10 McDonald's gift cards. Bear County, Texas Sheriff Javier Salazar said the migrants were never told they were going to Massachusetts, but they were promised they would end up in a place where they could work and live. Absolutely, they lied to them. They told them they were going to get jobs there and housing there. And, you know, just everything. The answer to your prayers is, is on this plane and we'll take you to the promised land. You know, the streets are paved with gold. Salazar believes criminal charges could be filed, and he's forwarded his investigation to the local district attorney. The Nativity School in Worcester is going co-ed. Leaders at the all-boys Catholic middle school have announced plans to open a girls' division. School officials tell the Telegram and Gazette they hope it will open next year. The humpback whale will stay on the Massachusetts endangered species list. Governor Maura Healy's administration had proposed removing the marine mammal this year, but state officials changed course this month. No reason was provided, but conservationists tell the Boston Globe the whale still needs official protections. It's 8:33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at renewalbyandersoncares.com. The Patriots added another loss to their season. In Las Vegas yesterday, the Raiders beat the Pats 21-17. That puts the Patriots at a 1-5 record for the season. Scattered showers expected today with temperatures in the 50s. More rain tonight with lows in the 40s and showers again tomorrow with highs in the 50s. It's 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Poland's populist right-wing government appears to be on its way out after eight years in power. Yeah, it seems so. Exit polling shows the ruling Law and Justice Party, which has steadily chipped away at democratic institutions, is suffering a dramatic upset. During its rule, the party has had a frosty relationship with its fellow European Union members. That may now change. NPR's Rob Schmitz is in Poland's capital, Warsaw. Hey there, Rob. Morning, Steve. What are the results so far? Well, exit polls are showing that while the ruling Law and Justice Party received the highest percentage of the vote at around 36 percent, that is not enough for them to form a government. And that's because the only other party that would form a coalition with Law and Justice did not get enough votes. So the left-center civic coalition, headed by former EU Council President and former Polish Prime Minister Donald Tusk, is poised to form a coalition government with two other parties. And last night, Tusk declared victory. Ten wynik mówi sam za siebie. And Steve, he's saying here, nobody can cheat us anymore. We have won back our democracy, we've won freedom, and we've won back our beloved Poland. So how has law and justice, the party that got a lot of votes but seems to have lost, responded? Well, last night, the party had Jaroslav Kaczynski congratulated his party for garnering the most votes, but he did acknowledge that his party would have a difficult time forming a government if the exit polls are correct. How are people responding otherwise? Shock and jubilation, Steve. Political scientists I've spoken to here are all surprised by this result. They were not expecting this. Here's political analyst Adam Tracik. This is a huge win for the for the Polish democracy and for the Polish society as well. I mean, we are looking at, at the turnout of 73%, which is a record-breaking figure, uh, 10 percentage points higher than, than during the first free election of uh, 1989. So this is a tremendous win for, for the whole country and for its citizens. And Steve, I want to underline something that he said here. Voter turnout yesterday was 73%. No election in Polish history has come even close to that. Not even in 1989 when Poles voted out communists from government. Voters were in line at some polling stations until 3 in the morning this morning. And that says a lot about how fed up voters are of this current government. What made voters fed up? Well, Law and Justice has spent the past eight years rigging the judicial system and public media to serve its purposes and to keep itself in power. And in 2020, this largely Catholic conservative government also banned abortion in Poland. And it's interesting, it was after that when Law and Justice's popularity began to slide. It slid from 42% to 35% and it never recovered. So in essence, the abortion ban was for so many voters the final straw. What would this imply for other countries given that Poland is one of a lot of countries where it seemed that democratic norms were slipping. Well, populism and nationalism are spreading throughout Europe, and should these results hold, it'll show the world that this trend is not inevitable and that voters can put a stop to it as they seem to have here in Poland. It'll also mean that the European Union again has a close partner in Warsaw and that the difficult work of restoring a democracy will begin again for the 40 million people here in Poland. NPR's Rob Schmitz, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
Howard University in Washington, D.C. has been an incubator of great minds since its founding in 1867. Minds like the late actor Chadwick Boseman. I heard on the radio somebody call it Wakanda University. Vice President Kamala Harris. Look, we were in Toni Morrison's where she wrote, you know, in that room that we were in. Oh, yeah. And Toni Morrison. The criteria for excellence had nothing to do with color. It had only to do with talent. Ben Vinson III began his tenure as president in September. He spoke to our colleague Michelle Martin about his vision for this historically black university at a time of major divides in America. He thinks Howard can heal some of the fissures in American society. It goes back to its founding as a way to really ensure uh, a path for recently freed slaves to become more, to help complete some of the promise that America has offered in its most idyllic sense. Uh, and Howard uh, has, has been with our nation at crucial moments. So from that moment of uplift from slavery um, into uh, the moments of the glorious Harlem Renaissance. So you've got this sort of interesting dichotomy, you know, kind of an outsized role in the culture on the one hand, but being asked continually to do more with less. And I'm just interested in how you navigate those dual realities. Well, it's, it's an unfortunate reality uh, that, that, uh, of America and our history again. As these institutions were born, they often didn't have the, uh, the endowment and the support and the continued support that has nourished um, other institutions in, throughout the United States. So that has created, I would say, a degree of, of scrappiness, of energy, uh, I think of creativity. Um, the Biden administration has recently discussed maybe overall a $7 billion uh, investment. Uh, we've seen philanthropic support. Um, this is a, a pivotal moment because, um, quite frankly, these are investments not just in us as institutions, but it's in our mission and it's in, in our ability to have delivered, helping to gr create greater uplift. You also, though, arrive at a time when people have actually been making physical threats against HBCUs and there's also the street crime aspect of it. students actually being attacked right outside sort of the gates of the campus. But I'm just interested in how you think about that. When you send your child to college, one of the things that's important is making sure that they're as safe as possible. And our commitment at this university and at all the universities that I've been at is safety is a top priority. First, for us here at Howard, involves a, a tight partnership with Metropolitan Police Department, uh, doing our best, working in league with them, being in constant communication with them. Do you think that you are taking this post at a time when in some parts of the country, in fact, many parts of the country, there's an effort to sanitize American history, particularly when it comes to issues of race and the presence of African-Americans as part of the American story. First of all, I'm a, I'm a scholar myself of the black experience. Um, these things go to our core. Uh, we are, uh, our motto is truth and service. And uh, our scholars are dedicated to, to research that, uh, that uncovers truth, uh, however difficult or contrarian that may seem to, to other viewpoints. Um, our scholars will remain committed to that pursuit of truth uh, and, and exploring all recesses of the black experience, um, the implications of disparities, of, uh, of inequity. These are things that, uh, that have been part of us. Um, we clung to uh, those tenets of truth, um, and that's something that we will remain committed to as an institution. Ben Vincent III, the 18th president of Howard University, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
This is NPR News. And coming up in about 10 minutes here on Morning Edition, it's the Marketplace Morning Report. Among the stories in the report today, the status of unions in the U.S. Scattered showers likely today with temperatures in the 50s. More rain tonight with lows in the 40s and clouds and showers tomorrow with highs in the 50s. It's 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include McLean Hospital. For expert, research-based psychiatric care, turn to McLean. Leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at McLeanHospital.org. In business news, after sitting empty for years, there are plans for an abandoned grocery store in Somerville's Winter Hill neighborhood. The plans call for the former Star Market to be demolished and replaced with two six-story buildings. Owners of the site tell the Boston Globe the buildings will include nearly 300 apartments and retail space. A Burlington-based tech company is suing Korean electronics giant Samsung over alleged patent infringement. In court documents, leaders with Sarence say that Samsung knowingly infringed on its patents related to voice recognition software. There's been no response from Samsung. The Black Mountain Ski Resort near Mount Washington, New Hampshire, will not open for the coming season. Owners blame rising costs, a shortage of workers, and unpredictable weather. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens, offering solar subscriptions that allow households to access the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Conductor Václav Lux returns with a lively Beethoven program October 27th and 29th. Handelandhaydn.org. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. When people first hear Kimaya Diggs perform, they tend to notice her voice. But these days, it's her songwriting that sets Diggs apart. The East Hampton musician is one of 10 local artists of color that we're profiling throughout the week. WBUR's Amelia Mason caught Diggs in concert this summer. It's a blissful August evening at the Sam Adams Brewery in Jamaica Plain. Kimaya Diggs is playing a short solo set. Diggs begins to pick out a mournful guitar riff as she introduces her song, Letting Go. She explains that she wrote it about the fights she used to have with her mom on family vacations to the Cape. And then about 14 years ago, my mom got sick and I started imagining what it would be like to go to the Cape and not have the big fight with her because she wasn't there. Then she reveals that her mother died in 2021 and a hush falls over the crowd. Like a lot of Diggs' songs, it's emotive, but also somehow unsentimental. Kind of like her. I am not, and my mom wasn't either, like, I'm not somebody that's like, live every day as if it's your last, you know? It's just like, I want to live every day in a way that is fine. You know what I mean? So, like, sometimes I'm not doing my best living. Sometimes I'm just getting through a day. And even after I wrote the song Letting Go, I would still have fights with my mom. 
Letting Go is one of the songs Diggs recorded for her latest album, Quincy. It's named after her dog, who also passed away during the pandemic. But it's not an album about grief. Most of the songs were written while Diggs' mother was still alive. On Quincy, listeners are more likely to notice the retro R&B arrangements. And of course, Diggs' voice. The 30-year-old grew up in South Hadley and trained, as a teenager, with a professional chorus called Northern Harmony, performing choral music from around the world. Bulgarian folk songs, American shape note, South African gospel. It was high-level stuff. It sharpened her voice and taught her to blend with other singers. She's so aware of what she's doing vocally. And so it was like uh, immediately singing with someone that I'd rehearsed with. Heather Maloney, a singer-songwriter based in Western Mass, remembers the first time she invited Diggs to sing with her on stage. She was blending and kind of picking up on the little things that I do and doing them in the harmony. And I was, yeah, I was just wowed. Diggs always had confidence in her voice. But she didn't think she could write songs. And I kind of was thinking, okay, the best thing that I could do is maybe be like a backup singer for a famous person. That changed when she was 21 and picked up the guitar with the encouragement of her now husband, Jacob Rezaza. I just started experimenting with it and felt a lot more free in a new context to start writing. It was very exciting. With Rezaza, Diggs put out her first album, Breastfed, in 2018. It was intimate and very DIY. I'm... For Quincy, she wanted to do something different. From the get-go, I knew that I wanted to be more of an active producer. Diggs wrote a lot of the songs with a full band in mind. She wanted the album to sound summery and warm and a little improvisational. I did feel a little out of my depth a lot of times. But my commitment to myself with this album, I was like, if I have a strong idea, I am just going to honor myself by following through with it. And so, strangely, the album recorded in the aftermath of loss represents Diggs coming into her own. Last month, Diggs released live versions of some of the songs on Quincy, which takes its own kind of confidence to pull off. She and Razaza recorded the songs in their backyard. Just guitar, bass, Diggs' voice, and the birds. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. To hear more of Kimaya Diggs' music and to see photos, visit WBUR.org. This afternoon, listen for the story of the country's first theater company dedicated to telling Asian-American stories in both English and Mandarin.
Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour, where we'll have all the latest on the war in Israel. It's 10 minutes before 9. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck, available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. And UMass Chan Medical School, advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. More on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu slash together. Fentanyl was involved in the vast majority of teen overdose deaths in 2021, and the problem is following them onto college campuses. When an overdose happens, naloxone can be the difference between life and death. Giving out uh, naloxone and fentanyl testing strips, if any of y'all would want them. Naloxone on college campuses, plus the latest on the Israel-Gaza conflict, on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. The Biden administration will ask Congress for billions of dollars to help Israel and Ukraine. Residents are clearing wreckage after deadly earthquakes hit Afghanistan Sunday, the fourth series of quakes in about a week. And congressional Republicans meet today as efforts continue to choose a new Speaker of the House. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR. WBUR supporters include Celebrity Series, presenting an evening with Audra McDonald, October 22nd at Symphony Hall. You can learn more at CelebritySeries.org. Scattered showers today, temperatures in the 50s, rain tonight with lows in the 40s. 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. The benefits of including salary information in job postings. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. And by Vantage Score. Vantage Score's credit scoring models help expand financial inclusion by leveraging predictive analytics at VantageScore.com. From Marketplace, I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer, in for David Broncaccio. First, later today, a bankruptcy court in New Jersey will hold the first hearing on the restructuring of pharmacy chain Rite Aid. The company has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. It expects to close some of its stores in an effort to reduce its heavy debt burden. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. Rite Aid says it has some $8.5 billion in debt and $7.5 billion in assets. It's also facing lawsuits tied to the opioid addiction epidemic, including one filed by the Justice Department, which accuses the company of knowingly filling hundreds of thousands of illegal prescriptions for addictive painkillers. Such lawsuits are put on hold during the bankruptcy process, and companies such as drug makers Purdue, Malincourt, and Endo have used the tactic to deal with opioid-related claims. Rite Aid has been limping along for years, a smaller rival of CVS and Walgreens, In its latest quarter, it reported shrinking sales and a net loss of $300 million. The company's restructuring plan includes closing some of its retail locations to save on rent. Rite Aid did not specify how many stores would be affected. I'm Novosavo for Marketplace. More than 80% of hiring managers across the country say they now include salary information in job listings. That's according to new research from the employment firm Robert Half, but data from ZipRecruiter suggests the number that actually do this is lower, 
closer to 40 percent, at least for jobs posted on that particular site. But whatever the number, companies that do list salaries say they notice benefits, Marketplace's Samantha Fields reports. A growing number of states are requiring companies to include a salary range in job listings. Julia Pollack at ZipRecruiter says those laws make a difference. The share of job postings with pay posted rises after a law, a pay transparency law is introduced. Uh, It goes from around 20 to 30 percent before the law to about 50 to 60 percent after the law. Sometimes the salary ranges are huge and don't actually tell applicants all that much. But Pollock says that's not typical. And big range or small? Job postings that include salary data receive about 50% more applications on average, and they're actually three times more likely to deliver quality candidates. Companies are starting to recognize this, even in states that don't require it, says Brandy Britton at Robert Half. About six in ten hiring managers found that including the salary information does help them attract more qualified candidates. Still, some industries are more transparent than others. More than half of healthcare jobs on ZipRecruiter include a salary range. In tech, it's only around 20%. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. Let's do the numbers. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up, with the Dow future up more than 150 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is down at 4.69%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed with people in mind to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. We've been covering the ways in which investment in the arts can pay dividends for towns and cities. Today we're zooming out with a national snapshot. It's a fresh report from the advocacy group Americans for the Arts. Randy Cohen is vice president of research there, and he spoke with my colleague David Brancaccio. All right, so you do this every once in a while, this big report. What do you see in this one? Well, Arts and Economic Prosperity, it's an economic and social impact study. And what we see is arts are an industry. They're a $151.7 billion industry in the U.S. And that has incredible economic benefits. For one, it supports 2.6 million jobs across the country. But unlike most industries, They've got a huge value add that they bring to their communities. And that's that event-related spending that we capture. So, you know, think of the last time you went to an arts event. You may have went downtown, paid for parking, and had dinner, and saw the show, or went to the exhibit, and maybe had dessert afterward. What we found is the typical attendee spends $38.46 per person per event, not including the cost of admission. So, you know, the arts are creating commerce for local merchants. And what do you want people who are engaged with community affairs, elected officials and others to draw from numbers like this? What this economic impact study does, it helps government and community leaders understand that when they're investing in the arts, that they're getting more than cultural and quality of life benefits, which are vital and and central to livable communities, they're also getting 
economic benefits. They're driving commerce to local businesses. They're supporting jobs. Naturally, they're generating $29.1 billion in government revenue, and they're strengthening tourism. And we're still going out to stuff as we come out of COVID. On Broadway, theaters have run into some trouble filling seats, but nationally, do you see a downturn? Well, it's less of a downturn, I think, than a slower response than expected post-pandemic. And, you know, what we hear, and I think the data is still coming in, is that audiences are about two-thirds to three-quarters back. And so that's a, that's a real challenge for arts uh, and culture organizations out there. And as for definitions, arts and culture, it was a pretty big tent, the definition you would have used? Yes, we do. And we focus on nonprofit arts and culture. And so those are going to be your theaters, your museums. Folks sometimes ask, well, why focus just on, you know, that nonprofit sector? And that's because when government funds the arts, it's typically to the nonprofit arts and culture organizations. And it's an appropriate question to ask, you know, what's what's the return on investment for the public? Randy Cohen from Americans for the Arts with the latest arts and economic prosperity report they do about every five years. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That was my Marketplace colleague, David Brancaccio. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser with the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Scattered showers expected today. Temperatures in the 50s. More rain tonight with lows in the 40s. And clouds tomorrow with a chance of showers and highs in the 50s. 51 degrees in Boston at 9 o'clock. The BBC News Hour is coming up next with all the news from Israel. It's changing quickly, so stay with 90.9 WBUR for all the latest. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy, preparing middle and high schoolers through human-centered design. Open house October 19th, neiacademy.org. And Endless Energy, a certified AeroSeal installer designed to help homeowners get ready for winter by sealing versus replacing existing ductwork. GoEndlessEnergy.com. education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.